Um, so he had a seminar about absinthe, and it was in one of the smaller rooms in the Hotel Monteleone, I remember. Uh, but it was, you know, crowded. Everybody wanted to go to this because he was going to be pouring and we were going to be tasting absinthe. And this is at a time when it was still illegal. So quite frankly, probably the seminar was illegal and shouldn't have been conducted at all. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Decoding Cocktails. So glad you're here. Uh, quick note that, uh, as always, uh, today's show is brought to you by uh, my patrons, uh, which you can learn more about at patreon.com slash decodingcocktails, getting access to a variety of fun recurring content to help kind of push your cocktail journey forward. My guest today is Robert Simonson. He is a journalist and author who did not start out in the pursuit of cocktails, uh, but was actually at one point in time invited down to Tales of the Cocktail in an earlier year of its iteration. And as Robert puts it, he uh, he had a, a Sazerac that kind of really opened his eyes to things. And the rest of his time at Tales really showed him there was a lot going on and got him excited about this beat, uh, as they might call it in the biz. And so he's been reporting on the topic for a while. I was excited to talk with Robert uh, because when I was really kind of coming into my own on this cocktail business, I knew a lot about, I knew an increasing amount about drinks, maybe how to make them, some of the families and other things I talk about a lot. But Robert's uh, book, A Proper Drink, was really one of the first that opened my eyes to the history and how we got to where we are. And so uh, some of his journalism really helped me understand just the amount of complexity, serendipity, and things that happened. Uh, In this interview, we talk about things like... um, how the rise of the internet really coincided with a lot of the resurgence of the cocktail renaissance, that a number of drink forums, I remember one time reading a um, uh, bartender mixologist uh, out of Houston, Bobby Huegel, I think is how you say his name, uh, said at the time he was the one-man band in Houston. And so a forum like this gave a, a place to hear what people were working with and how do they maybe track down some of these things. So that was kind of fun. We also talk a little bit about cities like New Orleans and San Francisco, maybe not always getting quite the same amount of credit as New York and London. These are cities in the U.S. that um, really have kind of for a long time had a cocktail culture where like finding a, something like a Pisco Sour would not have been impossible. Fernet Branca would have been around. A lot of the Italian bitters, Campari and Aperol would have been circulating. And uh, he was quick to say that uh, a city like San Francisco uh, probably single-handedly brought the mojito back. And so then he also talks about that New Orleans really is this beautiful blend of classic tradition paired with a lot of modern influences. So we talk a little bit about some of the other cities that are very much in the conversation, but not quite peak uh, London, New York in that regard. Uh, in addition to Robert's work, um, that I mentioned a proper drink. He's also written a handful of books on the martini, the old fashioned mezcal and tequila. And, uh, if you're listening today on the day, the podcast drops today, his new book, uh, modern classic cocktails comes out. And so this is really a focus on cocktails, really from kind of, uh, the aughts and 2010s when, as he puts it, we were really in the full swing of things and what you need to know about a modern classic at its most basic is that it's uh, a drink, he says, that really kind of uh, caught legs and started to spread. 
So while there's other factors he weighed when creating this list of 60 plus, uh, the big component was, did it kind of catch, catch on? And were you suddenly, you know, it was created in Seattle and suddenly were you seeing it in Phoenix and Tulsa and Chicago, wherever I did forget to ask Robert, Hey, uh, does that mean that the Jaeger bomb, uh, is a, uh, is a modern classic because it would probably fit that category. So, uh, question for our second round conversation. Now, if you'd like to follow Robert, look him up at, uh, on Instagram, you can find him at Robert O. Simonson. Um, Robert also has a brand new newsletter out where he's kind of doing a lot of cocktail, but also some other related work. You can see that at robertsimonson.substack.com. We'll have all the rest of his information in the show notes. So with that, enjoy today's episode. Robert, thanks so much for taking time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Really happy to be here. So a place that I like to start, and you did talk about this in a proper drink, so this could be your answer, but I'm always interested if there's a moment that people remember really falling in love with or deciding to commit to this industry in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do talk about that in the beginning of a proper drink. Um, that first trip down to New Orleans to go to the Tales of the Cocktail Convention and sitting at the Carousel Bar and having my first Sazerac because you couldn't get Sazeracs in New York at that time. And um, it was that moment, but it was more uh, broadly that week because I met so many people and experienced um, so many thoughts about cocktails and mixology and bars. And New Orleans, of course, has a a wonderful plethora of classic and um, uh, classic bars and bars with a lot of personality, a lot of history and age, um, and they make a real impression. So as a journalist, um, you know, my antenna went up and realized there was a good subject here. There was a, a very um, rich beat that could probably produce uh, many, many stories. Beyond that Sazerac that you remember so clearly, is there, because I just finished my first Tales of the Cocktail and it was, uh, it was a lot of, <laughs> it, was, it was fun to experience. I am, I'm thankful, I think, that I experienced it for the first time at 39 and not at 23 because it is just so intense it's like it, it's it's beautiful it but is. Intense. yeah i experienced my first one when i was 41 and i was also thankful because you can get carried away and there, there's so much to drink as an adult you know you're a little more um selective and wise about like you know diving off into the deep end so yeah it's it, it's good to arrive there as an adult beyond that Sazerac, are there a couple of are there any particular conversations or people you met that week that again, kind of to your point, helped open your eyes to like the richness of what was going on there? Are there other things you remember from that first tales that really got you even more excited? Yeah, there are a few things. Um, I attended a few seminars, of course. Uh, The most memorable one was conducted by a guy named Ted Bro. Ted Bro was a biochemist from Louisiana who was obsessed with absinthe and he's the guy who almost single-handedly brought absinthe back because you know it was banned in the country for almost 100 years um and he proved to the government that there was nothing wrong with it there was no reason for it to be banned and he started making his own um so he had a seminar about absinthe and it was in one of the smaller rooms in the hotel monteleone i remember uh but it was you know crowded Everybody wanted to go to this because he was going to be pouring and we were going to be tasting absinthe. And this is at a time when it was still illegal. So quite frankly, probably the seminar was illegal and shouldn't have been conducted at all. Um, But at that time, we're in this age of discovery. And a lot of that was just trying to find the spirits and liqueurs that we had lost and had only read about. And uh, absinthe was at the top of the list. Um, so that was quite an amazing, an amazing experience. Hmm. 
Yeah, I was fortunate to sit in on a session about clarifying milk uh, when I was down there. And it was like 90 minutes long and it was just enthralling. Yeah, Bacardi brought in a food scientist and it was uh, it was really quite marvelous to see somebody get that deep into the weeds on how clarification works. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I wanted to go to that one. I, I got to Tales of the Cocktail a little late in the week, but I saw that. I think uh, Noah Rothbaum uh, conducted that one. A uh, clarified milk punch is one of my favorite drinks. Whenever it's on the menu, I order it and it rarely lets you down. It's just an um, amazing beverage. And, and one of the wonderful things that the cocktail renaissance has brought back. I mean, it, it had completely disappeared. So uh, you know, your, you know, exploration, I, I, as I've seen and followed in your work is certainly research and in actual travels has kind of taken you all over the country. And a thing that I often think about is, um, you know, we owe so much gratitude to people in New York uh, and London for really helping catapult things forward. But it often seems like in some of your writings and other things that um, in places like San Francisco and New Orleans, Mm -hmm. the cocktail never really went away. Do you feel like, do those cities get the credit they they deserve for kind of having had these like perennial cocktail cultures i think perhaps in the past maybe they didn't but i think they do now um in my book a proper drink which is uh for those out there who haven't read it or don't know about it it's a it's not a cocktail book it's a history of the cocktail renaissance you know starting in the 90s and coming up till around 2016 when it was published I think I tried to establish in that book that really when it came to the cocktail revival, there were three uh, major cities driving that. There was London, New York, and San Francisco. Um, There are several chapters devoted to San Francisco in that book. You're right. San Francisco is one of those cities that never forgot the cocktail, and they had their own particular ways of drinking. Um, You know, they... uh, the Pisco Punch and Pisco Sours. There was still a very strong Italian community in that city. And so they drank the Italian bitters. They drank Fernet Branca um, because they were so close to all this wonderful produce and fruit. There was a lot of like garden to glass stuff. Um, They're almost single-handedly responsible for bringing the mojito back to popularity in the late nineties and early aughts. and that spread to the rest of the country. Uh, a lot of influential bars, a lot of influential bartenders. Um, I feel, you know, if I lived in San Francisco, I might have a chip on my shoulder and think that New York and London get a lot more attention. And uh, New York is always going to get more attention. You know, it's just the way it is. New Orleans is a different case. Uh, they always had a great cocktail culture. They hung on to the old traditions and the old drinks. And for that reason, they didn't really jump on board uh, the wagon for the cocktail revival early on. They probably felt, you know, we've got our own drinking culture and what's broken doesn't need to be fixed. You know, and we're not going to have a lot of young whippersnappers coming down here and tell us how to drink. You know, we know how to make Ramos Gin Fizz and a Sazerac and a Milk Punch and all these things. Uh, And, um, you know, bars like Napoleon House, you know, kept the Pimm's Club alive single handedly. Uh, Pat O'Brien's kept the hurricane alive single-handedly. You know, there are all kinds of hero stories down there. But in the late aughts and then in the 2010s, they started to get back up to speed. So I think what you got now in New Orleans, you got the best of both worlds. You got the old bars and the old drinks, and you got new bars and the new drinks. So uh, they deserve all the all the attention they, they get. Hmm. So kind of just painting a window uh, for people, like, I mean, I'm fortunate to work with people all the time who are often at the, you know, they've, they've tasted many a cocktail one out at the bar, but they're really at home uh, kind of getting a feel for things. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, um, uh, you know, and the plethora of drinks that, you know, for things that aren't terribly complicated are there drinks that you always find surprise and delight people you might recommend someone take a run at at home to make you mean like an unfamiliar drink not like a classic drink yeah perhaps something a little less familiar and if it happens to be a classic that's fine i'm more just curious if there are things that you're always like 
when you're looking to impress, you know, something that always nails it is this thing right here. I do tend to lean toward the classics at home. Um, I think all of us do, you know, it's simple, three ingredients, whatever it is. Uh, because of the pandemic, there hasn't been a lot of entertaining going on. So I'm not people to impress. And when people did come over, I would try to have like one or two, uh, you know, fancy cocktails, different cocktails up my sleeve. But, um, you know, uh, really well-made uh, old fashions and Manhattans and martinis are not necessarily still that common that you can't impress people with them. You most definitely can. Um, particularly with an old fashioned, you know, using, you know, a high quality bourbon or rye and just, just making it with a lot of, uh, a lot of attention. Um, a Sazerac, which we already mentioned, will always impress anybody um, because people don't make those at home. Not really. I wonder if they do in New Orleans. I expect they do, but and maybe they don't because you can just go to any bar and order one. So why are you going to do that? Um, let's see what else. Uh, I mean, I, I, I have this app that I put together called Modern Classic Cocktails about 10 years ago. And it's, it's been a, like a subject of mine, something that I've been interested in, what those drinks are. Uh, and there are so many of them that are simple. And so you can like, instead of a Manhattan, you could make a Little Italy, which is just um, rye and sweet vermouth, but the chinar being the difference in there. And, and, you know, that can be different enough to, you know, get someone excited or or raise their eyebrows a little bit um every time i have someone over it's always different um there's not that one drink uh that i always you know pull out of my hat like a rabbit and and then it has the wow factor just depends you have to think about the people that are coming over the weather outside you know what time of year it is uh used to have a christmas party every year before the pandemic uh, put an end to that temporarily. And I would make homemade uh, Tom and Jerry's, um, which is a basically a uh, hot eggnog. Um, and uh, that always impressed everybody because you don't see that very often. It's a lot of work. And if you live in the Midwest, maybe there are some bars that will serve it during the holiday season, but um, out here on the East Coast, not so much. So coming to the Christmas party and then on, uh, instantly being handed a a mug of freshly prepared Tom and Jerry, you know, that, that always did the trick. People, people were impressed by that. I, I was fortunate during uh, the first uh, holiday of the pandemic to do a class for um, uh, alumni of Marquette University. And uh, so there was oh, lots, yeah. there was lots and lots of discussion about the Tom and Jerry on that uh, particular call right there. I bet I bet they would know their Tom and Jerry's. That's yeah. right. That's and that's and that's your corner of the woods, right? Yeah, I was born in Milwaukee and uh, raised in southeastern Wisconsin. Got so it. yeah, I know Marquette. Okay. Okay. So you have um, with your new book coming out, the uh, modern classics. Mm -hmm. I was curious about something in terms of. And maybe a designate a, a delineation isn't important, but a thing I was thinking about is like in a proper drink, you certainly talk about drinks like the Jasmine created out in California yeah, you know, in the yeah. uh, late eighties, early nineties. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of Robert, what you define as a modern classic is this kind of post Dale DeGroff, Dick Bradsill, kind of from the eighties, or, or is there a way you set about delineating what is a modern classic? Yeah, yeah, no, I put a lot of thought into it and I came up with certain rules and criteria. Um, uh, they're all, as the cocktail revival just continues on, you know, the length of time that um, a modern classic can be within increases and grows. Uh, but it does start with people like Dale DeGroff here in the United States and Dick Bradsell, who was his counterpart in London, and the stuff that they came up with um, in the late 80s and the 90s. So with Dick Bradsell, things like the espresso martini, which we're still drinking hand over fist these days, and the bramble, and uh, with uh, Dale, um, things like uh, Fitzgerald and the Ritz. Um, they were like the inspirational figures, like the uh, foundational figures. And then everybody kind of built on, on their example. 
Most of the modern classics, though, that are in the book uh, are from the aughts and the early 2010s, because that was this peak, this uh, that was peak revival. That was like this time of, you know, fevered invention. Hundreds and thousands of new drinks were invented and many of them very good. Um, so what makes a modern classic? Well, uh, number one, of course, it has to be popular. You know, people have to order it. Uh, I think number two, it has to be respected by your fellow bartenders. You know, you can be a bartender and say, I have created an amazing drink. But if you get crickets, you know, maybe you haven't created an amazing drink. Maybe you just think so. And you can tell that other bartenders like it because they put it on their menu. And that's another sign that you're like on your way to perhaps having a, a home run because it's not your bar, it's not your menu, and they still think it's so good they want to put it on the menu. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, I should know these rules that came up with them. Uh, it, uh, it, oh, number one, uh, perhaps most important, it has to travel beyond the bar where it was invented. It can't just stay there. Otherwise, it's just a house specialty. It's not um, a modern classic. A couple of other things that have come up recently, which are kind of funny. Um, people, it, it, it becomes enough of a classic so familiar that people actually don't think uh, anyone alive invented it, that it was invented uh, like before prohibition. You know, there are a lot of people who think the penicillin uh, the gold rush, uh, the revolver, that these are hundred year old drinks and it's, uh, the bartenders can't, you know, who invented these can't even convince anybody, you know, so it's like, I created that. And they say, no, no, you didn't. That's been around forever. It's like, you're just a big liar. Um, <laughs> so, uh, these are, these are, um, some of the things, you know, some of the criterion that help you help let you know that what you're dealing with is a modern classic. So I'm uh, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on a copy because it comes out uh, October fourth, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, it's available for pre-order. Um, I'm expecting my box of books from the publisher any day now. So whether or not it made your list, I had a question, and I'll keep this uh, generic just because you know mm -hmm. talk talk freely about this. So on a list of modern classics out there, uh, and we can always shine light on if we want to. Um, uh, the cable car out of San Francisco yeah. is listed and mm -hmm. what took me aback, but I feel like is always still these lessons learned is I feel like it would be very easy to, uh, disparage something like a captain Morgan, for example. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so to your point, if a drink has transcended the space it's in to where it's suddenly pervasive, you know, perhaps it's a modern classic regardless, but um, I actually have it on a list of things I need to try because you can't be skeptical and not have tried it. But I was curious what your take might be on the cable car since it is made with what some would consider to be an inferior spiced rum. Yeah, a cable car uh, was invented by uh, Tony Ebogannon, who was a prominent uh, bartender in San Francisco in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and it's basically a sidecar but it's made with spiced rum, Captain Morgan specifically. And instead of a sugar rim, it has like a cinnamon sugar rim. So it's a really simple kind of deviation from the sidecar model. So uh, we have to think about um, context. You know, when he created this, uh, it was the 90s. And it still wasn't a period when bartenders were creating new cocktails. We're so used to it now that bartenders, we expect them to create original cocktails at their bars. But there was a time for a very long time when that wasn't really the bartender's job. In like the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the, the latter half of the 20th century, they just made the drinks that are already established. They didn't go around like concocting new ones and trying to uh, create a new sensation across the nation. Um, so when Tony was making that drink and i believe he debuted it at the starlight room in the francis drake hotel in san francisco that was a novelty that was a novelty um just to see a drink on the menu that you didn't recognize and also to base a new drink on an old drink that nobody really drank anymore like the sidecar 
nobody really cared about the sidecar and more more correctly it was almost like a brandy crusta you know which absolutely nobody remembered um so for those reasons it was influential it was i mean i understand that today it may seem a bit passe um though i am told that people still drink cable cars in san francisco and other places um because the bartenders move on and they do become obsessed with quality ingredients and they're not going to make drinks with Captain Morgan. Um, but it was influential at the time. You, you always have to put these things in context. Um, and so I still think of it as a, a modern classic. And uh, it's just kind of genius in a way because it's such a small little tweak. And now, see, back then, um, Captain Morgan, if you wanted spiced rum, you had Captain Morgan and maybe a few other selections, which are actually probably worse than Captain Morgan. Since then, there are many spiced rums on the market of higher quality. So you can make the cable car with the spiced rum of your choice and feel better about it. Um, and it probably will be a, you know, a better drink than the one with Captain Morgan. So... Uh, yeah, those are my thoughts on the cable car. Terrific. Uh, re regarding that, and obviously things, uh, availability varies by market, but are there, mm -hmm. is, is there a spiced rum or two that comes to mind for you that you would reach for having your pick of the litter? I don't drink a lot of spiced rum, but Captain's Reserve is good, I think. Okay, very good. Okay. Um, something else that I think... Uh, you know, to me, we live in an era right now where we're fortunate to be able to connect in various ways and like, oh, there's my email, et cetera. We, we you know, life before the cell phone, you know, and mm -hmm. the internet, who remembers it? But I remember when I was reading A Proper Drink, hearing about those moments when platforms like Drink Boy came about. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm just... And whatever uh, way you'd be comfortable, like talking about it, like just how did that really change things? I think it's evident, but, but when a platform like that came about, like did cocktails just accelerate like through the roof at that point or what, what, what's your thoughts on those forums early days? Yes. Yes. Um, they did. Uh, the cocktail revival and the internet kind of rose uh, along parallel tracks at exactly the same time. And we wouldn't be sitting here talking about the cocktail revival without the internet. Uh, it may have happened, but it would have happened a lot more slowly, you know, like 19th century slow, you know, it would have had to be word of mouth and print articles and that would have spread the word. But with the internet, um, people in different cities in different countries could get together and chat about subjects that interested them. You know, like, how do you make a proper old fashioned? Does anyone know where I can get creme de violette? Um, does anyone know where I can get a copy of, you know, Jerry Thomas's 1862 cocktail book, you know, so I could find it? Or is there a copy online? Uh, so Drink Boy was one of those first forums. It was uh, started by Robert Hess, who worked for Microsoft, and he was in Seattle, so he knew what he was doing. Um, and it was, yeah, I think people, there weren't that many people who were obsessed with cocktails at that point. It was a handful, you know, like a couple dozen. So, and half of those were professionals and half of those were just enthusiasts. They just got together and they chatted and they, they hashed out topics and they came to uh, some conclusions. Uh, at least they gathered additional knowledge and then they brought that knowledge, you know, back to their bars and um, it, was the, it was very important, very influential. And then there were a few other forums, like the e-gullet the, the back then, if you remember them. They had an important food and drink forum. Uh, I believe Ted Hay, who was like the first cocktail historian down in L.A., um, he also was active on the Internet. I forget which forum he was in charge of. But these, uh, these helped get things going before we started to get a new crop of cocktail books. You know, it took a while for that to happen. Uh, Dale DeGroff put out a cocktail book in 2001 and then uh, Gary Regan put one out, I believe in 2003. And then finally David Wondrich came out with his imbibe in 2007. But before that, there weren't many 
there were either there were old cocktail books that were out of print and you couldn't find them. So it's that. Or there were some new cocktail books that were full of bad recipes and misinformation. So until we got good books coming out, um, the internet helped. Joy of, uh, Joy of Mixology was my first book in 2010. I got it. And yeah, I, I was... I was such an amateur that it was very overwhelming, but it was fun to see the way that Gary like organized drinks by families at that point in time. It really mm -hmm. helped me begin to um, see some of those associations it was pretty, it was pretty remarkable. I'd have to say. Yeah. That was revelatory to a lot of uh, bar bartenders and cocktail enthusiasts. Um, definitely uh, one of the seminal works of modern cocktail literature. When you returned from that initial tales kind of thinking, hey, I, I think I'm going to pursue this route. So uh, were you at that point in time just um, digging up as many of those vintage cocktail books and, you know, obviously Dale's book, but, but what, what, how did your research kind of begin once you decided to commit to the field? Yeah, it, be, um, it began in a lot of different ways, uh, you know. As a journalist, you read everything that you can get your hands on. There were a few books out there, and I, yeah, I bought them. I don't know if I, uh, there was a company, um, uh, Mud Puddle Books, which was run by Cocktail Kingdom. And right around that time, they started to reissue some of the old lost cocktail books. It was run by a guy named uh, Greg Baum. He still runs it. And uh, Greg Baum comes from a publishing family. So... I believe he had the wherewithal to buy these books. So if he f saw them on eBay, he would, he would outbid everyone and he would get that book. Um, and soon enough, he had this huge library of hundreds of old cocktail manuals. And so then he saw an audience among cocktail enthusiasts and bartenders for these books. And so one by one, he started to republish them, you know, books by, um, William Schmidt and Harry Johnson and Harry uh, McLone, you know, uh, seminal works and people bought them. And so I, I, uh, I certainly bought some of those. I don't think, I think by the time I started writing about cocktails, I mean, the word was out and the prices for the old books, had started to skyrocket. And quite frankly, if it was more than a hundred dollars, I couldn't afford it. So someone else got that book. Uh, I do have a decent little collection at this point. You can still sometimes go to like uh, used bookstores or vintage stores in cities that aren't necessarily obsessed with cocktails and find a bargain from time to time. And so you build your library up bit by bit. Uh, so there were those books. Um, there were the cocktail books that were written by uh, Dale and Gary and uh, David Wondrich. Uh, and uh, Ted High, Ted Hay, uh, one of the early books, uh, which everyone should read um, if they want to learn anything about the history of cocktails is uh, Straight Up and on the Rocks by William Grimes. He was a New York Times writer who covered Dale DeGroff's work at the Rainbow Room early on. And someone approached him and said, would you like to write a cocktail book? And he said, I, the only book I want to write is the history of cocktails. I don't want to write a recipe book. And so he actually researched all this stuff, which hadn't been researched for safely 75 years, ever since Prohibition. And he went to like the Library of Congress looking for these old cocktail books. He found that most of them had been stolen, you know, by people who just really wanted these books. So it was very difficult work. Um, the people who get into cocktail writing today work is very easy for them because all the history and all the research has been done by other people. There's very few rocks that haven't been uh, lifted and uncovered uh, at this point. But when William Grimes was doing it, there was nothing. There was nothing. He had to build it all from scratch. It was real shoe leather stuff. It was real um, reporter stuff. And so that came out, I think, to very little fanfare, uh, I believe in 2003 or somewhere around then but um for those of us who came later and started writing about this stuff that was that was um very critical that work because he's uh William Grimes is a great reporter he's thorough he doesn't make mistakes so 
it's solid reporting. There was that, and there was also a, um, a book length uh, kind of thesis by a guy named uh, Lowell Edmonds on the Martini called The Silver Bullet. He was a professor at Rutgers, and for some reason he decided that the Martini was a significant enough piece of American uh, culture that deserved an entire book exam. So that, if, you, if you're interested in just martinis, um, that was a great, a great work to rely upon. I think that came out in 1981. There was another martini book by a guy named Barnaby Conrad III that came out in 1999, and that helped too. So there were like some things, but really, if you were one of the early writers on cocktails, um, like myself, you had to do a lot of work. You had to do a lot of work. Every time you wrote an article about any old drink, you had to just like find out all the facts on your own and, and sift um, the wheat from the chaff and make sure you weren't putting out uh, misinformation and myths that had been repeated over and over again, but actually weren't true. Because that is 90% of cocktail journalism out there. There's, some lazy person writing the story about the Negroni or the Margarita and saying it was invented. So they say, blah, blah, blah. And none of it's true and they don't care. And they didn't do the work. So, um, yeah, you have to constantly, even today you have to fight against that stuff. I imagine like with anything, Robert, it's just practice, but in terms of, um, is there any advice you'd have for the lay reader out there in terms of honing their BS meter when they're reading? Because uh, a number of people I know in the industry, like, you know, they'll be talking about specs that were published online in fairly lauded places. And they're like, I don't think anybody's ever tested that because that sounds like garbage, you know? So uh, is there any, any watch outs you would have in general? It's probably, uh, I, I don't know if you would, but I, uh, I agree. There's a lot of bad journalism out there it's tough but if you are a cocktail enthusiast and you read this stuff and if you spend time talking to bartenders and stuff i mean your spidey sense kind of goes off after a while and something seems fishy you say like i'm not so sure about that you know if it's uh i would say if a story sounds too good to be true it is yeah, it's like, so that's, that should set up a red flag. And just ask around uh, people you respect. And this includes uh, bookstore, independent bookstore owners. It's like, who are the reputable writers on this subject? And you'll get to know. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned the martini, another martini book out there is your own martini book. Um, <laughs> a, so for a drink that has been covered as much as the martini, uh, what drew you in to want to uh, learn more about it? And, and what did you learn by having to put together a formal work on the drink? Yeah, I wrote that book in 2019. And, and like most of the books that I've written, I wrote it because I thought there was a need for it. Um, when I wrote The Old Fashioned in 2014, I noticed The Old Fashioned was coming back and it was being made correctly and young people were ordering it again. And it was like, it was a resurgence. So I thought, this cocktail has never had a book. It's got to have a book. And with a proper drink, I realized there was no history of the cocktail revival. And if someone didn't write one, there would be no history and it would all be forgotten or misremembered. And so I wrote that. So the same thing happened on the martini. Uh, the martini really didn't get a lot of attention during the cocktail revival because I think bartenders didn't feel it needed to be saved. No one forgot about the martini. It was like the one cocktail that nobody will ever forget. It's so iconic. It basically is a synonym for cocktail. And also during the 90s, there was that whole teeny craze where bars had martini lists and they were all served in martini glasses and none of them were martinis. Um, they were made with, you know, amaretto or, or chocolate or, or uh, apple juice or whatever. And I think bartenders were still mad at the teeny. And so they ignored it. And which meant they ignored the martini as well, the real martini. But slowly but surely, I noticed in like the 2010s, like some uh, good bars and bartenders were bringing the martini back and making really good martinis. 
And so I thought, okay, it's um, there. The Martini is the one book that has had multiple, mul the one cocktail that it has had multiple books written about it. Usually with like, I mean, like there are what? Two books about the Negroni at this point. Maybe uh, there's still just one about the old fashioned, you know, but it's like, if you're lucky, you get a book. But Martini has gotten like two dozen books written up just about it over the past, oh, 30 years. But uh, there hadn't been one for 15 years and there was a lot more to say. So I decided to write one. And um, I discovered a lot of, it was also a challenge because most of the information's out there. Uh, it's very little new to say about the Martini, but I did find some new things to say. I wrote about the Martini on the Rocks, which was actually a popular drink and a phenomenon in the 50s and 60s that, uh, you know, today people were disrespected as, you know, being the sloppy version of the cocktail. But at one point it was trendy and that was uh, an eye opener to many people. I wrote a whole chapter about blue cheese stuffed olives and where they came from. Uh, and of course, I wrote about what happened with the martini in the past 10 to 15 years. One uh, evolution was the return of the 50-50 martini, which was popular in the late 19th century, but, you know, in the world of dry martinis had gone away. Uh, bartenders definitely brought that one back. Um, martini, that book's kind of a mystery to me uh, because I did think I was writing the right book at the right time but it has really sold less than any of my other books. And uh, you, you go to bars, you look around right now, people are drinking martinis right now, am I wrong? Everyone's drinking martinis. I mean, I think the pandemic had something to do with that. People wanted a nostalgic drink, they wanted a stiff drink. So I don't understand, um, maybe I just wrote the book too early. Maybe it should have come out in like 2021 or something like that. Yeah, I I think it's um it is interesting because I certainly do see people out drinking and enjoying their martinis, but mm -hmm. I do feel like there is still um for some reason I think the the old fashioned just for the the the, the to foil with like has mm -hmm. uh like a greater cachet or sex appeal of the moment. I don't know what I don't know how I would categorize it, but at least when I see people talking about one versus the other um th the martini still does feel older to me hmm. um and i i, I don't mean that to, to denigrate but yeah I, I it at least feels a little true i would say at least from where i sit so interesting interesting but right. uh, but i am also in st louis and not in uh new york and so uh perhaps it can also vary by geography too Hmm. What are the most popular cocktails in St. Louis? You know, I mean, I guess it depends on bars that you are frequenting. But yeah, I think, I mean, the number of old fashions you'll see call ordered here is very, very high. I think uh, the bourbon craze, I think, has led to people just knowing that it's a safe order. So, I mean, I bet I would see them ordered, you know, compared to the Manhattan, you know, 10 to one, something like that, you know, overall. Mm -hmm. So, so it feels overall, like it's a very safe pour, I think. Um, so that is what I'd say first comes to mind. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we are at a place at a market where you will hear daiquiris called for all the time. Okay. Uh, and so, but yeah, like if anything, the, the Renaissance found New York, however many years before St. Louis. And so I think we are still catching up and we've, I remember, I think it was uh, Joaquin Simo, I think I heard say that at one point he was in Toronto, and this was years ago, and he was saying of their scene, this reminds me of New York X years ago, and people immediately, <laughs> people at first got offended, but next he was like, mm -hmm. hey, but, but he's like, where you're at right now is you've got 12 great bartenders right now, but, mm -hmm. pr but pretty soon with a little more training, you're going to have 25 great bartenders. And so I think we have begun to see a real proliferation here, but we might still be, we're still a couple of steps behind too. Yeah, I see that too. I mean, there's always um, a pattern that cities follow. Uh, usually their first major cocktail bar is a speakeasy style cocktail bar that comes first. And then they get a little more open. Um, 
you eventually get a gin bar, you get a mezcal bar, you get a, a tiki bar, of course. Um, yeah, it follows a certain pattern. Uh, the old fashioned is just really one of the great success stories of the revival. There, there's certain things you can point to and say, yeah, we did that. N there's no denying it. So like the reclamation of the old fashioned is one. Uh, the proliferation of Negronis. Nobody was drinking Negronis 10 years ago. So popular now. So, and, and so many variations. Uh, bringing back rye whiskey. That, that's uh, something Cocktail Revival did. And of course, the explosion in tequila and mezcal. And uh, used in cocktails. Absolutely the work of modern bartenders. I, I do love seeing, and again, it could vary by market, but the... Um the dichotomy that can exist of, you know, once something has begun to be popular, like tequila mezcal now, but the people who are still, who they're not cocktail drinkers. And so the people uh -huh. that, that only remember, you know, you know, the, uh, the, the tequila shot era when they were just, <laughs> and so it, it is, it is the fun part about seeing people try something classically delicious for the first time a tommy's margarita a daiquiri mm -hmm. you know an old-fashioned for them to be like oh like or the number of people because you can still i'm sure get bad cocktails in places in you know new york and various places but um you know uh someone will make a whiskey sour with me and then they'll go to their neighborhood dive bar and order one and like you know the whiskey and the sweet and sour mix and they're like oh i can't order these anymore you've ruined yeah. it." yeah <laughs> That's true. Once you've had a good one, you, you can't put up with the bad stuff anymore. It is, it is really hard at that point in time. Uh, so obviously we've witnessed kind of the field of journalism uh, slowly shift over time. What we're reporting on, how we're reporting on is, is changing. I know one switch you, you've made is kind of a, a newsletter you're putting out now. Uh, yes. Will you tell us a little bit about the mix and why you decided to launch it? Yeah, it's called the mix uh, with Robert Simonson, and it's on Substack, which is a great host of newsletters, things we used to call blogs 15 years ago, and now we call them newsletters. Um, I, I launched it for a few reasons. Uh, obviously, I write about cocktails and bars and bartenders, and I've done that for 15 years. And I love writing about that, but you do get pigeonholed. And editors only want you to write about those things that you're known for. And I want to write about other things, so, but nobody would let me write about food or travel or only occasionally, you know, just things that interested me. So I thought I would launch it so that... Um, all the story ideas that I have that uh, won't be taken by various publications that I write for, and I'll write for them, I'll write for myself. Um, and I, that gives you a certain freedom. And the other reason I launched it was because uh, I think uh, the pandemic made um, everybody re-examine how they work and what they do and, and, and what they want to do. So, uh, the pandemic made me realize that, you know, you can't really uh, necessarily count on your employers all the time. You know, when things are bad, you know, you they may forget about you. Uh, so I, I thought, you know, I should learn how to become more independent, you know, and just like uh, write my own ticket. And so one way to do that is just, just uh, rely on books. And, you know, I'm always right, working on a book and, you know, they build up over time. And so I was lucky enough during pandemic that I had two books that I was working on. So I had something to do and I had money coming in. Um, but then I started, uh, Substack kind of exploded during the pandemic. And a lot of writers who had been traditional kind of freelance journalists, you know, doing the usual gig, you know, the usual grind, uh, they saw their work dry up. And so they went to Substack and the way Substack works is, um, people subscribe. They subscribe, they're either free or they're paid. And if they pay, then the money goes directly, a little bit goes to Substack, but most of it goes to the writer. And there's a direct connection between the reader and the writer, which is uh, very refreshing. So I saw some other writers doing this and I thought, uh, well, maybe I should give that a try. I, and I really studied it for about six months just to see if it was the right thing to do and, and try to envision of what mine, my Substack would be like. 
Um, I talked to other Substack writers and got their advice, got their insight. Um, and, uh, and then I just launched it in uh, January of this year. And it's, it's been going great. I really like it. I mean, I have to watch myself because if, if I left to my own devices, I'll just write articles for my own newsletter and I'll forget to write articles for all the publications and I'll neglect my books and all that stuff. So um, and then my wife says, you know, you better, you know, keep, keep pitching to those people because, you know, you can't make all your income from Substack yet, but there is a danger. If I do one day make enough money on the Substack, I may just leave all the rest behind because uh, I've been doing this for 30, 35 years. I know what I want to write about. And uh, you always want to make sure you still enjoy what you do. And I, en I enjoy writing. And I particularly enjoy it when I write for myself. I um, So I'm much earlier on in my cocktail journey and the professional side of it. But I've recently, I felt like as I look to grow this very small business of mine, that it, it's kind of me against the algorithms out there on the internet. And uh -huh. I, I did recently launch my own kind of uh, fan related piece too, because yeah, I felt like for the people that were really tuning in, like, how about I just cater to them? And in the long run, if you can really sustain a person, it also gives you even greater liberty to your point to do exactly what you want. And so I'm, uh, so I'm, I've kind of have my toes in the water now. Um, and it's been, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, I mean, I've been, had my toes in the water for three weeks on it now. Uh, so, so wow. it's brand new, but yeah, it's been, it's been good to try out so far. Yeah. 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 Congratulations. Good luck with it. I think our readers, I think they can instinctually tell if you're enjoying what you're writing about, um, as opposed to just being on assignment. So, um, yeah, no, I have, uh, I have great uh, hopes for this as um, perhaps the future of journalism. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just a couple of other little things. I am, uh, one of the things I heard uh, someone say at Tales this year that was very evident, you know, probably in part the trend was already building, but the pandemic pushed this, you know, the wellness push, the zero proof spirit-free push mm -hmm. at, at mm -hmm. tails was huge this year, which is great in terms of, Hey, you're out with friends. You don't want the night to end, but you also don't want to end up with a roaring headache the next day, you know, have mm -hmm. something. But I guess I was curious, do you have thoughts on where is zero proof overall headed as a movement right now? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it definitely is a growing movement. It actually started before the pandemic, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, before the pandemic, people were already talking about uh, low ABV cocktails and spritzes were becoming very popular again. So people wanted these drinks that had a um, smaller impact, you know, on your well-being. And then um, it kind of accelerated like a lot of things did during the pandemic. The pandemic accelerated so many things. It brought back home bartending. Everybody had to learn how to make their own drinks. It uh, brought, uh, before, canned and bottled cocktails really had a stigma to them and people didn't want them, but suddenly, boy, did they want them. And now we have a million. So, um, yeah, it's going to continue to grow. Uh, I think it's a healthy thing. You go to bars these days and there is always a non-alcoholic list, right, by the alcoholic list. Uh, you know, it can have as few as two drinks on it or as many as like six or seven. Uh I haven't spent a whole lot of time writing about this subject. Uh, I sort of feel it's not really my bailiwick. Um, I am writing about classical cocktails as I understand them and as they have been understood for a long time, 150 years. And um, I realize that a lot of these zero proof cocktails are quite complicated and a lot of thought is put into them, but they, are to me like soft drinks. And I think that's for someone else to write about. Perhaps food people should write about it. Um, I also have to confess, I, I don't find many that I enjoy. I, uh, they're often very sweet. They're often very uh, juicy. Um, I mean, I, 
I still love lemonade and iced tea and things and Coca-Cola. You know, I'll just order one of those if I don't want to drink. So it's, 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 um, it's a complicated issue. I also, because I've been writing about cocktails for so long and I've worked so hard like many other people to bring cocktails back to respectability, to bring mixology back to respectability so that it's on uh, the same level as what's going on in the kitchen that bartenders should be respected as much as chefs. And we had to uh, uh, bring back all this terminology and uh, all these uh, levels of, uh, of quality and skill and expertise to have people come along and say, this, this cocktail, which I think of as one thing, can be applied as a name to anything it almost sort of feels like a slap in the face. You know, like, you know, look, these are cocktails too. And it's just like, you know, not everything can be a cocktail. And why does it have to be a cocktail? Why does it have to have that name? Um, so I guess when, I understand the thinking, but when people say, you know, a cocktail doesn't have to have alcohol in it, I go, you know, historically, not so much. It kind of does. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what a cocktail is. And that's what a cocktail, how a cocktail was invented. And I don't know, the debate will continue. It, it will indeed. And what it is one of the things I've appreciated about some of the brands as opposed to naming their product um, as, you know, a, a substitute for X. Yes. Uh, I, I do appreciate that as the consumer it probably helps me have an idea of what something might be swinging in the ballpark of, but mm -hmm. you know, this is, you know, but also like seed lip is, you know, the easy example, like they, they don't yeah. call, they don't call. And I think that that way they are kind of carving out their own little category, even if it's on right. a co cocktail menu, we're not mm -hmm. saying this is really whiskey, even though it's not, you know? So. Yeah. yeah, there are some products that have come out and said, you know, zero proof whiskey or non-alcoholic gin. And just imagine if you are a gin maker and you've been making a gin for a hundred years and uh, perfected it and really worked hard at it, but someone would come along and say, look, this is gin too. You know, it's like, well, no, no, you don't get to take my name and, you know, sell your product off it when your product is nothing like gin. Mm -hmm. It's like, call it something else, you know, build, build your own empire. It's, it's great that there is a new market emerging for people based on they're in recovery or they just want something else. But uh, I would agree. It's probably, it'll be interesting to see how the pendulum plays out on this over time. Uh, if it does more and in its own territory or not. So we'll see, I guess. Yeah, the time will tell. I, I do think um, the non-alcoholic space that has been carved out in bars and on the shelves of stores, I don't think that'll go away. I think there is a hunger for that. I think there is a need for that. And, you know, it just kind of like broadens this world of drinking. Um, so maybe we, maybe some of the products that have come out will go away, but that's always the case with everything, you know, like um, probably a lot of the mezcals and tequilas we're seeing right now are going to go away. They can't all find the same market. Um, and one would hope that the, the best will, the best will survive. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Uh, well, Robert, this has been great. Thank you for taking the time for people that are interested to find your work. Where should they be looking you up? Well, if you want to explore the Substack, uh, it's at robertsimonson.substack.com. Or if you just go to the Substack site and click on food and drink, you know, all the newsletters pop up and you'll see mine. It's there, there near the top. Um, if you want to keep track of other articles that I'm writing or my books, uh, there's a website, robertsimonson.net. Perfect. Uh, Robert, again, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it today. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. 
If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktail 